Romans chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 today, and we are embarking on a, on a new section this morning, and one where the Apostle Paul turns his guns on a new target, and that new target is the, the moral man. If you have not been with us, uh, Paul's purpose, we've been walking verse by verse through uh, the Gospel of Romans, or the, uh, the book of Romans, all about the Gospel. And Paul's purpose has been shared from verse 15. He, he says he's eager to preach the Gospel of Christ. He's, he's eager to preach it because in it, that's in the message of the, of the Gospel, God reveals his, his saving truth of, of righteousness, how you, an unrighteous person, can receive the righteousness of God. And Paul also says that he's eager because all people need the the gospel. And so since that verse, verse 15, Paul has been methodically showing us why that's the case, why everyone needs the the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Immoral men have rejected God by suppressing the truth. And in chapter 1, the truth of creation and their conscience and, and even the consequences that come because of their sin and Paul says because of that, eternal wrath is coming. That that is God's revealed response to mankind's rejection of of his creator. And that abandoning is a a foretaste of of God's wrath right now on the earth. God gives sinners over to immoral lusts and sexual perversions and and a broken mind. And that's what we've we've covered in in chapter 1. But now, in chapter 2, Paul reminds us that's not the only kind of people that, that need the gospel. All people from all walks of life are, are guilty of rejecting God. They just reject Him in different ways. The, the Gentiles, the pagans, suppress the truth of God. The, the Jews or religious people pervert that truth, and they're also guilty in, in chapter 2. And then universally, all people deny the truth, and they're under sin. It's coming in chapter 3. So Paul now turns to this second kind of person who is guilty before God. They're the moral or ethical people of the world. And as you listen to, to Romans chapter 1, you may have found yourself thinking, that's not me. Uh, I mean, I don't reject God. I, I believe in Him. I'm, I'm not an evolutionist. I'm a seven-day creationist. And I don't engage in that type of immoral sexuality, at least not that kind, the, the kind that's listed in, in Romans 1. And, and I even think that the Bible is a helpful tool for, for life. I mean, the golden rule is a, is a worthy aim. And, and if you found yourself thinking those kinds of things, Paul is speaking to you today. There are many people in the world that that know about God, that, that are aware of right or wrong, and they, they reject God in a different way, the Bible says. They, these people don't worship sticks and rocks. They, they don't engage in the, the level of perversity that's described in Romans chapter 1. They even generally think rightly about, about life. Uh, they look nice. They, they smell nice. They, they may attend synagogue or, or a mosque or, in our case, a church every Sunday and but Paul will show that these people need the gospel just as much as the pagan in, in chapter 1. 
and maybe even more, he'll argue. And once again, God's response to, to, to that rebellion is it's not neutral. No matter how we smell or, or, or look, we, he will express his wrath in, in coming judgment. And so where, where chapter 1 condemns the godless man, chapter 2 condemns the common man, like, like the one that, that's raised in the Bible belt. Uh, chapter 1 reveals how irreligious people act, those who deny God, that there is a God. And chapter 2 reveals how religious people think. How they think about their sin, how they think about other people's sins, and, and ultimately how they think about God. Um, one writer called this section the psychology of the self-righteous. And and frankly, what you'll read, what we'll read in Romans 2 is is likely of a description of what you may have thought before you became a Christian. It's surely what a lot of people think today. A lot of people in our world hear Romans 1 and conclude, I don't do those kinds of sins or to that level, and so in their mind, they're a pretty good person. That's what they tell you, right? Whenever you witness to them, I'm a good person. I'm not an axe murderer, as one preacher said, as if that's the only sin that God judges. And what they mean is, I'm not like other people. I'm not like the people in Romans 1. You won't see me on an episode of cops like the prostitutes or the drug addicts that, that, that are there. Well, they have no problem admitting that they're sinners, just not a big enough one for God to condemn I mean, nobody's perfect, right? They say that as well. Doesn't that slide easily off your, your tongue? You've been saying that since you were a child. That's what you used to say to your mother and father whenever they gave you a standard that you didn't want to keep. What did you say? Everybody's doing it. I mean, all my friends are able to do this as, as if that made it somehow a righteous standard. What you were saying in both of those cases, in one form or another, is my sin shouldn't condemn me. My offenses look different, or, or God will overlook them, or should uh, uh, overlook them. And, and people all over the world use that faulty assessment to, to conclude that they must be okay with God. And, and that's what Paul is obliterating in, in chapter 2. In fact, as you're reading Paul's letter, uh, you may feel a little set up because Paul, knowing human nature, he intentionally starts his arguments of condemnation with the pagan man, with this, this grossly immoral person, in order to provoke these feelings in you if you have them, if they're in there. I mean, Paul anticipates the, the moral man or the pretty good person is going to be listening to Romans 1 saying, that's right, those Gentiles that suppress God's truth, they're under judgment. And, and they listen and they give a hearty amen whenever Paul talks about the godless and moral deserving God's wrath. And Paul's, Paul agrees, they do. So does God. I mean, can't you hear the religious person listening to Paul's condemnation of them and just building with agreement? I mean, the head starts to nod and then it gets, yes, amen, God should turn them over. Yes, I agree. The sexual revolution was bad. It was bad for society. I mean, I agree. This world's upside down and the social fabric is corrupted. I concur with Paul. The judgment of God on this world is just. And, 
And just as his argument builds about God turning them over, Paul knows the self-righteousness is, is building as well. And he finishes this long list of, of sins and evil things. And with the amen still echoing in the, the room, Paul says, so then why do you do those things too? And why do you expect to escape God's judgment whenever you do? You see, Paul's purpose over these three chapters is to show us that all people are sinners and need the gospel. And he's proven that for the pagans, the people who reject God outrightly and do openly wicked things, people who worship the creature rather than the creator. He's proven that they deserve God's wrath. But now in chapter 2, he shows so does the man who knows right but doesn't practice it. So he addresses moral people in general and Jewish people in particular. I mean, the people that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2, they know right. They, they, they know enough to judge. Uh, they have the, the right revelation. They, they have the law or, or the Bible. They, they have the right worship. They, they claim to worship God instead of idols. They, they have the right rituals, circumcision, he'll mention, or in our case, baptism, um, they have the right position. They're God's covenant people or, or part of a New Testament church if you're, you're applying it to today. But, but there are also people that think that their sins don't stink. Their morality in their mind is like a big spritz of poopery in the judgment hall of God. It's deodorant for their depravity. And they think that their ethics and knowledge is like a gas mask. It's going to protect them from God's wrath. And Paul reminds them and us that with God's judgment, you're not facing something like sarin gas. You're facing an atomic bomb. And it doesn't matter what clothing or covering you attempt to apply, laws or ceremonies or circumcision or baptism or Judeo-Christian ethics, you will be annihilated by that holiness unless you are in Jesus Christ. Unless you obey the law and show that you have a circumcised heart. And there are many Jewish people today that, that believe the opposite of, of what I just said. They, they believe simply because they're of the seed of Abraham. It doesn't matter whether they keep the law or they keep part of the law or 80% of the law. They, it doesn't matter about their sin. They're getting in the kingdom simply because they're Jews. And you probably don't know a lot of those people. But you do know a whole bunch of cultural Christians that believe the same kind of thing. And you might be one. They believe that they were born because they were born to Christian parents or in America, that they went to Sunday school or prayed a sinner's prayer or were baptized, that that means that they're going to heaven no matter what sin they commit. And Paul says, no, you're not. Because God judges a person by their deeds. And you can go to hell from a church pew just as easily as from a brothel. Whether you have the wrong religion or right religion, religion doesn't save you. You, you must have the righteousness of God that He provides through the gospel alone. And it comes to you by faith alone. And, and so in chapter 2, he shows how a person like this thinks wrongly. They wrongly think that they're going to receive a different judgment in verses 1 and 2. They, 
they think that because they think they have a different kind of sin in verse 3, the kind that God won't condemn, and, and they receive a different kind of grace in verse 4, a grace that turns a blind eye to their wickedness because of some perceived relationship with, with him. As one preacher framed up this section, they, there are three lies that Paul corrects here. The lie one, I am morally superior to other people. Lie two, I will escape God's justice. And lie three, I need less grace than, than others. And Paul says you're not genetically superior because you're a Jew or an American Christian. You have it backwards. You're, we're all genetically condemned because we're sinners. But the ethical person, the moral person, the religious person of Romans 2 can't see that. They, they can't see that because they're wearing this mask of morality. This whole section runs from verse 1 through verse 16. It's going to uncover three truths about God's righteous justice. His judgment is righteous. That's, that's the focus. And it's inclusive and it's impartial and it's, it's coming and it won't be avoided. Just because you possess the law or a Bible, it will be avoided by doing it, but... We're only going to look at the first section today, and that section is in verses 1 through 5. We'll call it three blind spots caused by the, the mask of morality. And this mask of morality, it, it renders you without excuse in verses 1 and 2. It reveals that you're self-deceived in verses 3 and 4, and, and it reaps your judgment in, in verse 5. You're without excuse, you're deceived. And judgment is coming. That's what Paul says here in these first five verses. These three blind spots you'll, you'll get one, one at a time. The first one is in verses 1 and, and 2. And, and Paul's argument goes like this. Your, your judging proves your ability to know right and wrong. Your, your practice confirms your guilt. And your knowledge of, of God's justice removes your defense. Look if you would at verse 1. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, or every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Paul says, for those of you who are sitting there going, how ridiculous, worshiping idols, how, how darkened and mindless, how disgusting are those sins of chapter 1. He has something to say to you. He, he says, you also or without excuse, before God. The key word here is judge or judgment. Uh, you probably hear it or heard it over and over as Michael read. It's used nine times in this section, including the first and the last verse. Verse 1, it says, O man, whoever you are that judges. And look at verse 16, how he wraps up this, this section. Verse 16, it says... On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Uh, Alva J. McLean said this passage starts out with man on the throne of judgment and it ends with God on his judgment throne, which is proper and, and, and right. He said in verse 1, the target is identified. You, O man, there's the reality. You condemn yourself. There's the tendency or inclination, you do the same things, and then there's the indictment. You're, you're without excuse. And Paul starts by, by showing that, that when you judge a, another person, you, you self-condemn. Because it proves that, that you have the faculties or the abilities to know right from wrong. 
I mean, the issue here is not judging. Um, the verse that the world loves to quote, right? Um, you Christians, judge not, lest you be judged, which is completely out of context. I mean, one commentator said, if judging, if that's Paul's point, you as a Christian or a moral person should not judge, as in condemn somebody else. If judging was the issue, then, then Paul would be guilty himself because he just judged the, 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 uh, the, the Gentiles in chapter 1, and now he's judging the moralists in chapter 2. In fact, did you know that God expects you, expects human beings to judge between right and wrong? God commands you to draw conclusions about sinful practices and then avoid them. Now, of course, only God has the, the right to condemn somebody for, for that, but, but He expects you to, to judge morally right and morally wrong actions and, and, and attitudes um, in others and, and in yourself. And, and that's the, the problem here. The issue here is the person is judging others for the very things that they are, are doing. If you would at verse 1 again. It says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, or every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And as Paul is building his case here... His point is that your judging proves your discernment is working properly. It's just not applied equally. You know right and wrong. You just don't apply that same standard to yourself. Notice the change in pronouns. I mean, in chapter 1, Paul has been saying them and they. Um, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And now in chapter 2, he changes the pronoun. But you, oh man. And he accuses this hypothetical person who is judging. And Paul's using a common way of making a point by having an imaginary conversation with someone. A technical, the technical term for it is a, is a diatribe. And, and we do this all the time. We use this same method. We, we say things like, well, if you ask me, I would blah, blah, blah. And Sometimes when you're listening to a person who does that quite often, you're thinking, well, nobody did ask you, right? I mean, nobody literally asked us that question. So why do we do that? Because we're, it gives us a chance to answer a question nobody's asking, but we think that they should be asking, and we think we have the answer to it. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's saying that there are people, he's not saying that there are people in the Roman church doing this, He's teaching the church and us through this method of how God condemns moral people outside of Christ. These are, there are people who know right but, but still do wrong and think that they're right with God. It's exactly what the prophet Nathan did um, to David in 2 Samuel 12. I mean, almost every commentator I read use that, that very example. And you remember that story with David and his sin with Bathsheba. He was deep in sin, but blind to his own condition. And you remember David judges a wicked man in the, the prophet's story. The prophet Nathan comes to him and he gives him this hypothetical scenario where this rich man has just innumerable number of sheep and, and yet he steals this one poor man's single little ewe lamb. And 
And David judged that man when he listened to that story. He judged. He, he knew that, that's wrong. And he, and he got incensed. And, and David basically said, show me that man and he will die. And Nathan said, you are that man. You did the exact same thing. And he proved David's conscience was working properly. It just wasn't working properly for his own sin. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. When you judge somebody else, it proves that your conscience, your ability to discern right and wrong is working perfectly. The problem is you're not applying it to yourself. You may not do the exact same sin, but when you call it out, it shows you know what sin is. And so then when you commit the sin, you're doing it knowing right from wrong, and it condemns you. Look, look at verse 1 again. It says, you condemn yourself. Why? For you who judge practice the same things. Now Paul advances his argument by saying, your practice confirms your, your guilt. The guilt's not the judging, it's the practice. Their condemnation is that they practice these things. And when a person is able to judge another person's sin, but they sin themselves, there's both a blindness and there's a hypocrisy going on. And so Paul's shining a light on that. Blindness because they fail to see that their, their own self-condemnation in the condemnation that they pronounce on others. And hypocrisy because they do the same things without feeling bad about it. I mean, they're making correct moral judgments, proving that they didn't know right from wrong and knowing that they do it anyway, being oblivious to their own actions. And when God gives the pagans over to their own desires, it increases all kinds of sins and moral people do the same kind of sin. They expect to be excused while they expect to be the immoral, expect the immoral to be judged. I mean, religious people don't deny God. They, they acknowledge Him. They still have envy and lust and disobedience. Pagans are just less sophisticated about it, aren't they? They just deny God and sin. Both are evil. I mean, sex, who cares? I mean, the moral man covers it up, weaves elaborate arguments to, to, to justify it. I, I have a friend in West Virginia that deals with a drug addiction, the pastor. and He said, I'd much rather deal with somebody that comes into the home than the, the religious hypocrite in church. The religious hypocrite will lie to you. I mean, they'll, they'll say all kinds of different things. And, and, the, and the drug addict's like, yeah, I did crack last night and I need help. You can help somebody that's like that. Paul's saying the religious person is not better. They're still committing sin and they're still under God's judgment. In, in fact, they may be worse because they sin while knowing God. You read chapter, uh, verse 1 here, though, but it, it says, For you who practice the same things, and you might scratch your head a little bit and say, What does Paul mean by the same things? I mean, how can he be talking about a Jew or a, a moral or a religious person if they're doing the things listed in chapter 1? I mean, chapter 1 is like this rank pagan portrait. I mean, is he talking about all the sins listed there? I mean, sometimes for sure. 
self-righteous people under a cover of morality can do some of the vilest things imaginable. I can remember, I just read an article this past week, some hipster pastor that had thousands of people in his church and his church members came to his house to surprise him, to deliver something to him and found him with somebody else that worked at the church and it wasn't his wife. The word therefore gives us a clue what Paul means by practicing the, the, these same things. It connects us back to his last thought in, in chapter 1. Remember the chapter breaks are, are for us. Uh, look back at verse 32. Look at how Paul uh, ends v- uh, chapter 1 and, and spills over into chapter 2. Uh, verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse. And at the end of the verse, for you who judge, practice the same things. The the bridge between chapter 1 and chapter 2 is this concept of practicing evil. Whether you're practicing evil and rejecting God or you're practicing evil and pretending that you know God. That's the connection, the practice of evil in all three chapters. The same things, they could be doing some of the sins listed in in chapter 1 when Paul lists this increase of of sinfulness in the world, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil, full of envy, murder, strife. You've heard of Baptists having strife, haven't you? Deceit and malice, gossips and slanderers and disobedient to parents. I'm sure none of you have ever done that. I mean, those are sins that we have committed, aren't they? I mean, who hasn't been envious or boastful or disobedient to parents? And you're not a pagan. I mean, you do that without denying God. You're not a homosexual whenever you you did those kinds of things or or a fornicator. They could be doing these things inwardly but not outwardly. And the difference is the person from chapter 2 looks moral on the outside. He smells nice. Even though they're very immoral on the inside. Isn't that what Jesus said to the Pharisees? You're like a whitewashed sepulcher. You look good on the outside, but you're full of dead men's bones. And the religious person here does what the pagans do. They they knew God, but they didn't glorify Him as God. They claimed to glorify God, but they inwardly exalted self. And some of you are sitting here this morning, and you came to Christ from a Romans 1 category, like me. You came to Christ out of open sin and rebellion shameful immorality and drunkenness. And some of you are sitting here came to Christ from a Romans 2 category. You didn't commit those kinds of sins. You're a Sunday school kid. You went to church your whole life. You, you never even drank. And you may even listen to the testimonies of the people in the waters of baptism that are saved out of, uh, out of Romans 1 and say, wow, I, I don't have a dramatic testimony like that. And In fact, there was probably a point in your life that you didn't even think that you needed to be saved until the Spirit of God convicted you. And Paul is writing here today to tell you your testimony is no less dramatic or needed. You were just as wicked in heart, even though it was masked by your morality before you came to Christ. 
And you even did those things knowing God and knowing that his judgment was right. And that knowledge removes your defense of ignorance. Look at verse 2. Here's the final point in this argument. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Notice the emphasis on practice uh, again. And he's aiming at removing excuses, just like the the pagan in chapter 1 was without excuse because there was a witness uh, from nature that revealed that there was a God, even that he's more powerful, and, and yet they didn't respond to that witness. They They suppress that truth. The moral man has God's justice spelled out for him. He knows that God is just. He's even exposed to the Bible or the law, and in this case as a Jew. And and the word we know here is in the perfect tense, meaning it's something that's settled. It's something that stands true for all time. It's not something that they just learned. It's a Expression according to the truth. They know according to the truth, it, or it rightly falls, means that God's justice is in according with the facts of the case. He's a righteous judge, and they know that. And Paul is, is not saying that there is truly a divine judgment, that they, they know that, uh, but that God's judgment is according to the truth. And, and they know that. And he says that this person's sure about that. They're so sure about that that they heartily see sin in other people and tell other people, you're going to face God's judgment if you don't repent. All the while they're practicing sin without repenting. He even goes on to say what we can know or be sure about. Look at verse 2 again. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls, justly falls on those who practice such things, not those who practice such things that just fall in chapter 1, but those who practice such things, period. You're sure that God judges those who practice these things. You not only have the ability to condemn others because you had the faculties to know right and wrong, you knew God is right to judge people who do those things, and you did it anyway. And His judgment is on all who practice sin. Let me illustrate how deceptive this is and how this works out in, in our life. I mean, do you think that God will judge a child molester's lust, but not yours? I mean, you say, well, isn't the, the lust of a, after a child worse than the lust after a, a grown woman? And Paul would say, what does that have to do with him judging you for your lust? You see how the, the deception works? doesn't mean that he'll judge you less, but that's what we try to believe. He may indeed judge the child molester more. There are surely levels of heinousness of sin in the world, but it doesn't mean that he'll judge you less because he judges them more. He'll judge both of you according to your deeds. And you'll both stand before God and be judged for your sin, the sin that you practice. And You see the deception that comes from comparison. It's Bill Clinton. I didn't go all the way, so that makes me better than somebody who did. I didn't murder somebody. I mean, while you had anger towards someone that would would, would lead you to, 
to that sin if you could get away with it. I mean, people think that because they're outwardly restrained from committing some sin that that keeps them from condemnation. Just, just like because you didn't act on it that God didn't see your heart. And we want credit when we don't deserve credit. I mean, how do you get credit for that? How do you get credit that was in your heart but, but there was something that stopped you from doing it? And if you had your, the way to do it or the ability to do it, you would have done it. You would have run that guy off the road or punched that lady in the nose or taken that person that you lusted after if there wasn't some outward consequence, some social shame or stigma to that. You see, we think that we're better than those sinners of Romans 1 when we do that, when in fact we're worse in some ways. Because you commit a sin while knowing God. You lust with a Bible on your nightstand. You come and sit under a sermon on Sunday about the, the love of Christ and then go home and treat your husband and your children like a dog. You think that God's going to overlook that? Because you claim to be a Christian? Or one of His? God says, no, I will not overlook that. I can't. Regardless of who you compare yourself to or find worse, regardless of your religious connections or morality, regardless of what you think, you can be sure that if you're practicing sin, God's righteous judgment is coming. God will not overlook it. He cannot overlook it. And the warning that Paul is giving here is what you may be overlooking is whether you're one of his to begin with. Because Christians don't act that way. Oh, they sin. But they don't judge others and practice sin. They, they don't sin and excuse it. They, when they do sin, they make no excuse and they, they repent it. They repent of it. I mean, I could stop right here, right? I mean, cue just as I am. But there's more and we need more because it shows why we do this. This is the second blind spot. Reveals that you're deceived. Deceived about two things. You're when you do this, you're mistaken about your sin and you're misguided about God. Look, if you would, at verse 3. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do them, do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? I mean, you, you can hear the matter of deception in the, in the question, can't you? I mean, do you suppose this, O man? Now the principle from verse 2 is now applied to the person who's the hypocrite. I mean, and notice again, the old man is used, this hypothetical person, to, to make a point, to answer a question that, that needs to be answered, that this moral person's not asking. And, and the focus is being deceived about what's coming for your sin. This person... In verse 3, thinks God's judgment will be diluted or be lenient because of who they are. They're mistaken about their sin. And, and they're also mis mistaken because of who they think God is. I mean, there's, there's, there's two possible ways we think our morality will, will get us somewhere with God. We believe that God will be lenient despite our disobedience because we're generally moral. That's the good guy argument. I mean, I'm... I'm a good guy. Doesn't that count for something? Secondly, we believe that our obedience, though not perfect, is sufficient to obtain righteousness. It's the, this is the I'm not as bad as them argument. 
And Paul's writing to tell us that both of those ideas are wrong, or to say it simply, you should not wrongly believe your sin is different in verse 3. It will be judged, and you should not wrongly believe that God's grace will overlook it. That's in verse 4. Paul says it's impossible because God's no respecter of persons. That's what he'll say before he's done with this chapter. He cannot minimize it. He can't minimize his justice. And we do this. We think our sin is different. Others lie, we just stretch the truth. I mean, others are unloving, we just tell it like it is. We're a prophet. Others lust, we have affection. Others are prejudiced, we, we have convictions. Others sin, we had a failure. Others are immoral, we're just weak or struggle. Kent Hughes said, God is not deceived by our renaming of our personal sins in self-righteous delusion. I am not a boastful person like those other people, says the man while boasting. I'm a pretty humble person, declares the man who's proud of it. And Joel James said that when you're like that, you believe your sins are different from other people's sins because of whatever, fill in the blank. Oh, they're sins, but they're just the non-condemning sins. You, you think you can escape wrath because of all of your cultural morality and ritual, that that makes your sin different, and Paul says it doesn't. You're misguided. You're mistaken about your sin. You're also, you, you can also be misguided about God. Look at the God part in verse 4. He says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Verse 4 goes with verse 3. It's the, the other side of the coin in the argument or the twin here. I mean, verse 3, you think God's not going to judge you even though you're sinning. In verse 4, you think he won't judge because he's so merciful and he's so gracious. This is the God will forgive me argument. Where God understands argument. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in, in counseling with someone and after taking the, the Bible and showing them that God says what they're doing is wrong and when they have no place else to run, this is where they run. They'll, they'll say, well, if it's wrong, we just established in the Bible that it's wrong, well, if it's wrong, God will forgive me. Like that grants them some type of plenary indulgence. Because they believe that. I mean, God's a forgiving God. God's a loving God. You, you can say it a lot of different ways, and He is. But Paul says here, if you're claiming that while you're sinning, it reveals that you don't know Him. Or you've forgotten that truth. Because this verse says, if you were seeing His mercy and His grace light, rightly, that would lead you to repentance, not lead you to excuse your sin. Doug Moo said, God's purpose in His kindness is not to excuse sin, but to stimulate repentance. But instead of repenting, you're actually despising these things. In verse 4, despising things about God. The, the word is the same one that's used in Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters, for he'll hate the one and love the other. He'll be devoted to one and despise the, the other. It's the same word used in Hebrews 12 too. Jesus who endured the cross, despising the shame. 
The word means to think little of something, to, to hold it in contempt, to, to think nothing of it. And then he defines what, what a person despises or, or holds in such little regard. Look at verse 4. Or do you think lightly, do you despise, do you hold in contempt the riches of his kindness and tolerance and, and, and patience? The, you think lightly of the kindness of God when you do this, the tolerance of God and the patience of God. You, you literally think little of who God is. These three words are how he reveals himself in Deuteronomy 34, 6. You know that verse, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God. And, and, in, and in your sin, excusing your sin, you're saying, yeah, 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 that, that's wonderful. Now I can keep doing what I want to do. It's the kindness of God. Christotes, the, the, his goodness, it's the riches of his kindness, the and it's his overflowing attributes, the riches of his goodness. It's the same word used in, in Ephesians 2.7. So in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of, of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Or Titus 3.4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. It's thinking little of his goodness. It's also thinking little of God's tolerance, his self-restraint, his forbearance, its it's the attribute of God that, that holds him back and delays in him unleashing exactly what we, what we need. It's used in Romans 3.25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith that this was to demonstrate the righteousness, or his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, the tolerance of God, he passed over sins previously committed and and he also mentions the patience of God, the makrothumia, the, the, the long-suffering, enduring patience. It's his slowness in avenging wrongs. And that not only offends God, it belittles him. You should not presume upon the Lord's kindness and think because he's gracious that you'll escape judgment. You're actually showing contempt for the kindness of God when you do that and People who do that should not expect to receive that kindness. They should expect to receive judgment. But people with these moral blind spots do that because of what's in their heart. So here's the final one, final point in Paul's argument. Doing this reaps judgment because of what's in you. Your moral faculties work well. You can tell right and wrong, you just can't see it in yourself. And you practice the same thing that, that, you, that you condemn. You, you think your sin's different than, than other people's and, or God's grace is different than it, than it really is. And the reason, Paul says, that that's happening is because of what's going on within your heart. Verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant, impenitent heart, you are... Storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Tom Schreiner says verse 5 brings us to the root of the problem. The kindness and patience of God are indeed intended to lead a self-righteous person to repentance, but they fail to repent because they have a hard and unrepentant heart. I mean, that's the fundamental issue. You want to correct this problem? That's what you target. A hard and unrepentant heart. 
And when Paul addresses the goodness and kindness of God, he's pointing to people who knew God's faithfulness in covenant. I mean, he's talking to moralists in general, but Jews in particular. I mean, people who know the law. And they knew of God's gracious mercy. They'd read the Old Testament. They lived it. They, they knew that Israel, whenever uh, he, they fell into sin, God restored them and forgave them. And, and he didn't abandon them. They knew the story of, of David. And, and yet they were then using that, that, those stories as, a, as an insulation of their own conscience and, and an excuse for continuing in their sin, not failing to, failing to remember the ones that fell in the wilderness or how David genuinely repented and wrote Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. This is a Christian that says, I can't help myself, but God knows my frame. It's dust, and because of that, he'll overlook it. Or once saved, always saved, while refusing to stop their sin. And Paul says, if you know that all, all of that about God, it should lead you to repentance, not continued sin. But instead of repenting in light of that, Paul says you harden your heart and you're in a dangerous place. You're storing up divine wrath. And there are two specific reasons. Whatever excuse you're, you're making, God declares here's why you're doing it. Your stubbornness, your callousness or hardness. It's the word where we get sclerosis. It's a hardening of the arteries. It's a hardened stubbornness, a callous. And an unrepentant heart, it's a person who admits no change of mind, somebody who's impenitent, who won't listen. And in that condition, you're storing up or treasuring up wrath for yourself. Paul uses a, a, a play on words. He uses a, a word here for storing up that, that should go with something positive, not something negative. You're, you're treasuring up is the, is the literal word. What you're treasuring up or storing up is wrath. Instead of storing up treasures in heaven, you're, you're storing up judgment. Because of your deeds, God's anger and righteous judgment will be, will be added to a divine vault and it will be poured out at the coming of Christ. And the play on words is, to, is intentional because this person is deceived. So the verse is supposed to work the same way that that, that Jesus uh, uses Matthew 7.21. Matthew 7.21 in the Sermon on the Mount, not, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. You remember that verse? You remember whenever they were shocked? I mean, didn't we do this or that? Weren't our sins different? Weren't we in a relationship with you? And Jesus says, depart from me, I, ne I never knew you. That's what's happening with this word treasured. Uh, Paul says that there are many moral and ethical people who can rightly judge the sins of others, who know that God is just in judging sin, and who know all about His kindness and His long-suffering and, and patience, and, and they think that their sin is different and their relationship will excuse them and they expect to get into heaven. And when they get there, they even have rewards. They want rewards for their morality or their ethics or the good things that they did while they had an unrepentant and stubborn heart. And Paul says these people, instead of getting the treasure that they think, they're going to receive eschatological wrath. And they're going to be surprised by what's in the treasure chest. 
because God will reward or punish people according to their deeds. Not according to their religion or their ethnicity or their rituals. You say God will judge people according to their deeds? Yeah. So what hope do we have? (laughs) That's Paul's whole point, isn't it? There's only one hope. That's Jesus Christ. And that's why the gospel is good news. It's the message of how God provides His righteousness to us. And it's obtained through faith alone. And anyone who realizes that and embraces the gospel, they cease from sin. That goodness and mercy of God that comes to them in Christ leads them to repentance, leads us to repentance in the face of our sin, not excusing it. And So if the thought, well, God will forgive me, ever goes through your mind whenever you're, you think of sin, stop immediately and ask God to help you. Paul says you're in a very dangerous place. You're in a Romans chapter 2 place. And then don't forget the reason that God is giving us Romans chapter 2. It's to remind us why Paul is so eager to preach this message of good news, which is even for this kind of person. Paul says the hope for the immoral man, if you were immoral like me, Or the moral man, the church kid, your only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through him, God can save even a person who has little regard for his patience and forbearance and goodness. James Montgomery Boyce said the most important thing in life is to know Jesus is able to save you from sin. And the second most important thing is to know that you require it. I pray you'll know both. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for your word. What a mirror it is. Lord, it's more than than a mirror. Um, It's a penetrating light. We look in a mirror sometimes and not we, we see things that, that are on the surface. Your word is like a light. It's like a laser. It shines down into the, the dark crevices of our hearts and shows us what's there. And Lord, even the purpose that you created, guilt, was so we would see our need and come to you. You're so merciful and gracious and kind. Oh, Father, I pray. Anyone who knows right from wrong and is still doing wrong, that today they would turn to Christ. I pray for any Christian who may have deceived themselves in thinking that they're okay because they're in covenant with you because of your grace. I pray that you would wake them and help them see that all of those things being true should lead them to repentance. And I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which saves to the uttermost. We proclaim it from the housetops and rejoice in it in Jesus' name. Amen.